If you have your Bibles this morning, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll be completing the chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Here's the deal. Here's what we're talking about today. The main portion of what's happened is in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we talked about the stumbling block argument. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, which we kind of glossed over because we had a snow day. Paul says, I'm going to give up my rights in order that I may serve other people and win other people. In 1 Corinthians 10, in that first part, he makes that argument about all of Israel had five things in common and they were all five benefits, yet they constantly failed over and over and over again. And only two of them ended up making it to the promised land. So in verse 14, he says, Flee from idolatry. And then in the end of chapter 10 here, what's going to happen is he's going to make an argument that says you can't be a participant of both the Lord's table and of the demon's tables. And then he's going to say, in addition to that, do all things to the glory of God and do all things so that you don't cause another brother to stumble. And those are the two main points. And those two main points that he's going to make in this passage that flow from the stumbling block argument are also two main points that are the first and the second greatest commandment. When Jesus was asked early on, what's the greatest commandment? He said, and I pray this prayer for my kids every night that I want them to do this, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is likened to it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if we could truly love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we wouldn't be double-minded in any way, would we? And if we loved others as ourselves then we wouldn't be selfish at all. But how many of us would confess right now that we are selfish human beings? Raise your hand. Those of you that didn't raise your hand, you're liars. We will talk to you after the service is over, all right? I thought I had it down. I had been working as a single guy to get my act together, to to get all these things. I mean, I had even consciously been doing things like putting the toilet seat down, because I knew that was a really big one, right? And so I had worked on these little things that I thought would make me the perfect guy for marriage. And I thought I had all this stuff down. I thought, this is it, I've got it, all right, it's great. And then I met my wife. And we started dating, and then we got engaged, and then we got married, and marriage is awesome and incredible, and don't hear me say anything other than that this morning, but I realized once we got married, I didn't always get things my way anymore. What do you want for dinner? I want something healthy. And I would always say, why? It doesn't taste good. (laughs) The way that she folds her shirts is different than the way I fold my shirts. You say, that doesn't matter at all. It does, because it's the way I stack them in the drawer. They fit better if you fold them my way rather than if you fold them her way. But now we've got this agreement where we separate them. She folds hers her way, mine my way. And so then we know which is whose, even if we don't have them put in the drawers yet. Socks. I mean, come on. I never knew that people actually fold their socks up like a little ball so that you could play basketball with them. Some of y'all do that, don't you? How many of you fold your socks up like a ball? Y'all are weird people. How many of you just take the ends and fold them over so that you don't ruin the elastic at the top and they stay not? Raise your hand. Come on, y'all with me, right? No, we're the minority. We're in trouble. See, that's got y'all wear those little sissy small socks or something, and you fold those do better as a ball. I'm just kidding. I wear both now because I've changed. Now, guess what? My wife helped me realize that in many ways I was selfish, and I began working on how not to be selfish. And then we had it conquered. We had it. It was whooped. And then we had Rachel. 
And guess what happened? I realized how selfish I was. Do you know that that child wanted food immediately? Even if it was the fourth quarter of a North Carolina Duke basketball game and it was a close game and I was watching, she would want everything immediately and I didn't want to do it immediately. So guess what I felt inside? Selfishness. All throughout these processes, I still get it. In fact, it's so funny. This past weekend, my little boy, too, Samuel, y'all have seen him walking around here at some point in time. He's starting to communicate more and he's starting to talk more and he's got a stubborn streak in him. I don't know where he gets it from. I think he probably got a double dose, but I know he got one really big dose. And, and he, he's at the house the other day and I tell him something and my two-year-old looks at me and says, don't tell me. <laughs> to be honest, I laughed. I couldn't control it. I didn't know what else to do. And so then I'll tell him something else later on and he does this. Not so fast, Dad, not so fast. Now, when you're a two-year-old saying, not so fast, Dad, not so fast, what do you, I can't help but laugh. But do you know what I'm seeing at two years old? I didn't have to teach him to be selfish. I didn't, nobody had to teach me to be selfish either. And if we look in the mirror and if we're honest with ourselves, nobody had to teach any of us to be selfish. All of us are born with this ingrained selfishness within us that says, I want my way, I want my way, and Burger King even developed a slogan off of it and said, you can have it your way, and people appeal to it. MySpace, well, that's dead and gone now. Facebook, it's your page, right? When Facebook comes and says we're going to do something different, we all get mad. You can't do that. I don't care if it's housed on your servers and your website. It's my space there and you can't touch it. And so we get selfish. This passage today, as we work our way through it, comes to a conclusion, and at the end of it, it talks about doing all for the glory of God and giving no offense to others. The opposite of that is what's ingrained in us about being selfish. So here's the lesson that I'm working through, because I still wake up some mornings, and I'm selfish. And I have to realize that morning I'm being selfish. And I have to realize at the same time that I gotta ask God to forgive me and I've gotta live my life for his glory and I've gotta live my life in a way that's not for me but is for others and a way that is gospel driven so it's more about the gospel than it is what I want at any particular time. And so this passage hits me square between the eyes. And I think if you're honest with yourself, you'd say it kind of hits you too in that we all struggle with selfishness. Now let's begin reading in verse 14. We're gonna read through the end of the chapter and I'm gonna ask you to stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. First Corinthians chapter 10, I'm gonna start reading in verse 14. We'll go through the end of the chapter. It says, therefore my beloved flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that the pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy 
are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informs you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything. I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Dear Lord, we pray today that you would speak to us through your word and that we would be faithful to listen, to hear, and to apply. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Here's how the passage breaks down. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And he talks about the Lord's Supper here and the cup and the blessing and participation. So let me walk through and give you a couple of nuggets here. But before I do, let me make this point because I'll forget this point. And I think this is pretty important in this particular chapter to make this point to you. I'm going through 11.1. How many of you in your Bibles have 11.1 listed and then a break between 11.1 and 11.2? If you've got the ESV, I think it breaks it there. If you've got the New King James, it breaks it there. If you have the New American Standard, it doesn't break it there. It breaks it 11.1, right? You guys with me? What about the NIV? I didn't look up the NIV. Anybody got the NIV? Does it break it at 11.1 or 11.2? Where does it break it? After 11.1, it breaks it. Now, why? Why does it come after 11.1? Well, I contend, along with many other commentators, that 11.1 is the summary statement of this section, and it's one of the three commands that we'll get to in verse 31 through 11.1. Now, it's really weird, though, when you cross over to a chapter, because we're so used to chapters being where we stop, right? So here's the question for you today. When were chapters added to the Bible? Anybody know the date? When were chapters added to the Bible? All right, that's your homework. You got to go look it up. I'll tell you they were added by Stephen Langton, and it was in the early 1200s AD. Somebody's pulling out their Google phone to look at it right now. If you go look, did you get it? He didn't use it. Oh, that's just too bad. It's in the 1200s. Some argue 1205, some argue 1229, some argue some other dates. But in the early 1200s, chapters were added to your, to your text. So when you look at the original text as it was in the early manuscripts, there were no numbers there. And not only that, but it's the 1500s before you get each verse registered. Now, why am I making a big deal out of this to you? Because sometimes I think we get in our minds that if I can just look at a couple of verses that I've done due diligence to the text. But these letters as they were written were not written with chapters or with number divisions in them. They were complete thoughts that were communicated to people. And so sometimes when we break out one verse and pull it out of context, and that's our reference for it, we're not taking it in the whole, and that's a bad thing. So I like the chapters and I like the verses because it helps me reference something or find it. It helps me get to it quickly. I know where I can go to talk about it. It helps me as I memorize scripture, even though sometimes we 
may be better off trying to memorize a whole book at a time rather than just a verse at a time, but it does help me memorize scripture. And so I want you to know that these were added later and that should impact the way you study and read and do your quiet time. It's not a verse by verse system. It's looking at it in context. It's looking at it in the whole. So now I'll jump back to the beginning because I just wanted to make sure I didn't forget to make that point because you don't get to make that point very often. In verse 14, flee from idolatry. Verse 15, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, that word bless there is unique. It's actually the word from which we get our eulogy. Now, when you give a eulogy, what is a eulogy? It's not really a blessing per se, is it? It's when you talk about somebody and you remember somebody and you tell of the great things they did and you have this bigger context than just of the blessing. It's the cup there that we bless. And it's not a participation, and the participation there is the word quanania. It's the Greek word quanania. Why is that word important? The first time you're going to get the word quanania in the New Testament is in Acts. The book of Acts, after the Holy Spirit falls, quanania develops, and you have a fellowship or a community that takes place. So the word participation here is not the best word to talk about exactly what this means. Participation actually in this text should mean some communal participation. It should mean some togetherness that's taking place. And so what Paul's doing is he's making an argument here and he's saying it's not a participation, a fellowship, a communal celebration in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a communal fellowship, a participation in the body of Christ? Now, I'm not gonna talk a lot about the Lord's Supper because that shows up again in the second half of chapter 11. But in this particular section, what you see him making the point of is it's that all again. From the first part of chapter 10 with the all was mentioned five times. Then he's coming to here and he's saying, when we join together and partake of the Lord's Supper, we do so looking around in fellowship, looking back in a remembrance, and then looking forward in an anticipation. And in verse 17, he says, because there are one bread, we who are the many are one body. And here you see a foreshadowing of what we're going to find in verse 12, in chapter 12, particularly verse 12 of chapter 12, where he makes the one body argument. So he's giving you a glimpse here and he says there's one bread. Now, there are actually some churches that will still put the one loaf and bake it, uh, the unleavened loaf and bake it in somebody's kitchen and bring it and, and they'll take that one loaf and they'll still break it off that one loaf. Most churches don't do that anymore because of germs because they don't have anybody that's going to break it, because the congregation's too big, and so they don't use the one loaf analogy, but here Paul's using the one analogy. In verse 18, he says, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifice participants in the altar? And so if you eat the sacrifices, the word again, quantania, are you not part of that communal fellowship in the altar? So what do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. The food amounts to nothing, it's food. An idol, a graven image, is just an image that we have made, it's nothing. That image itself has no power. No, he says in verse 20, imply that the pagan sacrifices they offer are to demons. And so what he's saying here is that if you're involved in some type of idolatrous practice, that what you're doing is you're offering a sacrifice to the demons who are behind the idol, not to the idol itself. The idol is still just a graven image. It's still just food. There's nothing mystical or powerful about it. But behind that, we know that there lies a spiritual reality. And that spiritual reality is that we wrestle against not flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers powers and the rulers of the darkness. And so he says here in verse 21, 
You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? There's a great application for us here. The application is you can't be double-minded. You can't be headed in two different ways. The application here is that syncretism does not work. There are complete faiths that try to join together all of the different deities of everything, such as the Baha'i faith, that will bring together all of them so you can worship every god all at one time. And what he's saying here is you can't participate with demons and participate with God. You have to be single-focused, single-minded. And even if you are singly-focused and minded, we're such sinful people, it's still hard to live the life that we need to live. What does this look like for us? What's the biggest idol you can think of in our society? Give me some feedback here. You name it. What's the biggest idol you can think of? Money. Entertainment. Comfort. What's another idol? Relationships. Family. What was that one? Sports. Think about all those. Money. Do we love money more than we love God? If somebody were to look at our lives and they were to look at what we think about, what we spend our time doing, how we work, how we strategically plan, and they were to look at how we had planned our lives so that we could make money, we chose a degree, a degree so that we could make money, we're working hard so that we can make money, and if it's all about money, is that an idol for us? Now, if it's about God and you happen to make a whole lot of money, nothing wrong with that. It's the love of money that's the problem. It's making it an idol that competes with God that's the problem. Think about sports. How many of you go to a college basketball game? Very few of you. We got to work on that, all right? Here's what it looked like the other night at the college basketball game. We showed up in a Batman costume. My kids were Power Rangers. My wife was somebody I don't even know, but it was an easy costume. Who was it? Black Widow, and so, which is not a good thing for me, so y'all pray for me, all right, if she's going to. We show up at the basketball game, and we're sitting there at the basketball game, and good things happen, and what do we do? We jump up, and we cheer. We get excited. We have fun. We run around looking at each other's costumes, and people are dressed weird, and nobody really cares. You're having a good time, and then you show up for chapel, and what happens? You sit there, and if the preacher says something good, what do you do? You sit there. So here's what I need. I need some cheerleaders for chapel. Anybody want to, we're not going to do flips up front. I need some vocal cheerleaders for chapel to give some good feedback to the pastor, to the preacher, whoever's speaking, to say, amen, all right, come on, bring it. I don't care. Be respectful, but I don't care. Give some feedback. Don't say you're pathetic, you stink. That doesn't work, Okay. And, and amen, <laughs> you're catching on, I like it. Here's what I want us to do. As we come to chapel to worship, I want us to have just as much fun as we do when we're on a basketball game or we're at a football game. I mean, when North Carolina beat Duke the other night, you couldn't keep me in my seat on the couch. I was pretty excited about that. It's a big game, that was good. And all the fans stormed the court afterwards and they were all, when's the last time you saw the fans storm the altar after a sermon got through being preached? Anybody ever seen that? I don't know that I wanna encourage you to do that. That could get dangerous or look out of control, but, but you get my point here, sports, 
money, all of these things, we treat them in such a way that we treat them like we care more about them than we do the word of God. And he's saying here, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Now, this is a constant struggle. You say, today I've got it beaten. I'm gonna serve the Lord. Great, tomorrow you wake up, it's another struggle. And this is what we call the Christian life. It doesn't go away. And he transitions here and he goes into verse 23 and he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Make sure you remember this. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Not all things build up. Your actions and your works don't get you into heaven, but that doesn't mean things, even the things not expressly forbidden in the Bible are good or beneficial for you to participate in them. It doesn't mean you should do those. Not in a legalistic way, but in a way that just uses wisdom. And so what are the two guiding principles that he's gonna give us for the wisdom? Verse 24, let no one seek their own good, but to seek the good of others. And then at the end in verse 31, whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. Those should be your two principles in life. And they go back to the two greatest commandments. Verse 25, it says, eat whatever sold in the meat market without raising questions on the ground of conscience. So back in their day, you go to the meat market, you see all this meat on one side, meat on the other side. You just buy it. You don't worry about where did you get the meat from? Is it inspected? Was it whole grain? Were they fed with sterile? You don't start asking all of these different questions. Buy the meat, enjoy life. Don't worry about all the little details, he says. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, go and eat it. Eat without raising a question. Whatever he says before you, you eat it. You don't worry about it. No big deal. But then if somebody comes along, and it's always that guy wearing the, tie, the suit and the tie, right? He's all bustled up. He comes along and he says, hey, do you know that that meat was offered to idols? Paul says, don't eat it then. Because the very fact that this person's telling you that meat was offered to idols is he's testing your faith to see who you're gonna serve. If you're gonna serve God or if you're gonna serve an idol. So Paul says, don't do it. Not because it makes it wrong to eat meat in the market, but because you're going to cause your brother to stumble. And we're supposed to be so much concerned with loving others that we don't want our brother to stumble. And so we're going to give up some of our personal freedom. We're going to give up some of our personal liberty so that we can allow our brother not to stumble and not to be offended. And this is where Paul wraps back up that argument that began in chapter eight. And when he comes back around, he tells them in verse 28, where he says that if they tell you it's been offered to idols, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informs you and for the sake of conscience. In verse 29, he clarifies. He says, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why shouldn't, and here's the follow-up. You say, wait a second, that's not fair. How come this guy can influence what I can do? And Paul answers. In verse 29, he says, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by somebody else's conscience? That's like saying, why should I care what he thinks about what I do? But in verse 30, if I participate with thankfulness, if I participate with charis, with grace, with thankfulness, then why am I denounced? Why am I blasphemed is the original word there. Why is somebody gonna come along and speak bad about me if I'm doing something that I give thanks for? How can they limit my liberty? And so Paul turns into the conclusion here of verses 31 through, through 11, one, and he says, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. Three commands. And these three commands should be three commands we seek to live our life with. Do all to the glory of God. Whether you're eating, whether you're playing basketball, 
whether you're cheering at a basketball game, whether you're studying, whether you're playing music, whether you're in a drama, whatever you're doing, whether you're writing an article, whether you're writing a blog post, whether you're posting on Facebook, whether you're putting something on Twitter, whether you're interacting with other people, whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. An imperative command, do all to the glory of God. That should be what we strive to do in our lives. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it for his glory. And the second imperative comes in verse 32. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do not seeking my own advantage, but that of many so that many may be saved. You say, wait a second. You can't please all the people all the time. It's not possible. But what he's saying here is he's saying, don't live your life in such a selfish way that you're focused internally on what I want to do. But you live your life in a way that you're looking out at others and you're saying, how can I live my life in a way to give glory to him? And how can I live my life in a way that's gonna have a positive impact on others, including you? That's gotta be our motivation. Will we always be successful? No, but that's gotta be our motivation. Here we see at the end, he says, I do it not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, so that they may be saved. Verse 11, one gives the third command, the third imperative here in this closing section, and he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Imitators. If I were to pop the Greek word up on the screen, you could see the word mimic in there. Do you know what a mimic is? I know what a mimic is because it happens in the backseat of my car repeatedly with my children because the two-year-old has figured out that if he says everything the nine-year-old says, it gets on the nine-year-old's nerves. And for some reason, that's great fun for a two-year-old. You can relate to that, right? How many of you have brothers and sisters and you've done this to them as well? Now, my nine-year-old is a pretty intelligent nine-year-old. So she has figured out how to respond to this. And she will go back to him and say, Samuel, can you say no? And he'll say no. He can't say no. But then she'll laugh at him and make fun of him the rest of the car ride because he said no, even though he didn't intend to say no. And so these are the games that get played in my car. What happens is that really in life, that two-year-old wants to do everything my nine-year-old does. She's perfect. Anything she does, he's going to do. She stands up in her chair at dinner time. It's okay for him to stand up in his chair at dinner time. It's not okay for either one of them to, but they think that in their own mind. They get up and leave the dinner table. The other one says, I can get up and leave the dinner table too. They run and jump down the stairs that they're not supposed to play on. The other one thinks, I can run and jump down the stairs and do the same thing because he wants to be just like a big sister. How many of you had a big brother or big sister you wanted to be just like? Maybe not just like, but you imitated them. You did what they did. Paul's saying here that spiritually, I'm your big brother. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So what we're saying to you, and what I'm saying in closing this, is that we have two basic commands that flow through this entire thing of do all for the glory of God. 
And that's that we do all for the glory of God and then we do it all for others and not selfishly. And then Paul, as our spiritual big brother, says, imitate me as I seek to imitate Christ. And so what I'm challenging you is if you're a spiritual big brother for somebody, imitate Christ and imitate Christ well. If you're still new in your faith, if you're one of the 28 that made a profession of faith last week, even though you may have studied the Bible for a long time in your life, find a spiritual big brother that you can come along and you can imitate but make sure that they're imitating Christ. It's not just imitate anyone. It's imitate Paul. Why? Because Paul is imitating Christ. And so in our lives, we should look and try to imitate Christ and then influence others so that they can then do what we're doing. We're leading them in a discipleship process so that ultimately all of us do what we do for the glory of God and for the love of others. Let's try to be known as a campus that does it all for the glory of God. And I think we do. I just learned last week that our soccer players write notes to all of their opponents that they're going to be playing and they give them their numbers so that they can then share the gospel with them or talk to them and that they're still in communication with some of them. That's it. That's using your sport to do all to the glory of God. The honor tip in volleyball. That's doing what you do to the glory of God. That happens all over this campus in any number of ways. And what I'm saying to you is let's keep that going and encourage that. We have people that go to Ohio State to share the gospel. That's using your time for the glory of God. And so I just want to challenge you that all you do, do it for God. And with all you do, Don't look selfishly, inwardly at yourself, but look at others and love others. The two greatest commandments, and that's what we should be known for above all else, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as yourself, and that should be Cedarville University. That's where we need to be. That's where I want us to be, making a difference for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, I pray that you would just help us all each day, every day to do all to your glory. And Father, that we may not look selfishly upon ourselves, but that we may also do all that we can to further the gospel of Jesus Christ, considering others before ourselves, just as you considered us before yourself when you came to this earth to die on a cross for our sins. Lord, we thank you for that and we give you the praise for that. And I ask all this in your precious and holy name. Amen.